Hey, Cricket customers, Max with ads is included with your Cricket $60 unlimited plan at no additional cost. Nice! Max is the streaming platform where you can watch Scoob, Meg 2 The Trench, The Nightmare on Elm Street Collection, and so much more. Remember me. Just log in with your Cricket username and password to experience Max on all your favorite devices. We've never seen this before. Max, the one to watch for a good scream with Cricket. Yeah! Phone plan, streams, and standard definition. Programming subject to change. Fees, terms, and restrictions apply. See cricketwireless.com for details. It's Friday, May 6th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how much can we blame Charles Dickens for the persisting archetype of creepy clowns? Who and what other cultural factors over the centuries contributed to so many people being wigged out by clowns? Plus, we now know the general location of where Forrest Fenn's treasure chest was found. And a roundup of media recommendations for your weekend based on stories I've covered previously on the show. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Like many people, I have never liked clowns. I was terrified of them as a kid. I largely grew out of it as a teenager, but I still wouldn't ever choose to go see one perform. A lot of people are quick to place the blame on fear of clowns on the many horror films and books that portray clowns as sadistic killers, but that's not really the whole story. I didn't ever see it or any kind of intentionally scary clown content until I was older, when I had already been wary of clowns for a good decade at least. You know, for me, the fear must have come from some other source, maybe something deeper. So many kids don't like clowns these days. McDonald's started retiring Ronald McDonald from the public eye around the time of that outbreak of creepy clowns in 2016. But really, their decision might have just been following trends. Studies have shown for a while that kids' interest in clowns has been declining. One oft-cited 2008 study of 250 kids between the ages of 4 and 16 found that not a single one of them liked clowns, with even some of the older kids reporting being scared of them. One child psychologist responded to the study at the time saying that the clowns are, quote, unfamiliar and come from a different era, end quote. And that really hits it on the head. Both parts of it. Clowns are from a different era, many different eras, in fact, and have gone through many evolutions over the centuries. But in their latest incarnations, what most people today would think of as a clown, they do certainly look unfamiliar bizarre enough to be unsettling. So first, quoting a 2016 piece by psychology professor Frank T. McAndrew in The Conversation, "...clown-like characters have been around for thousands of years. Historically, jesters and clowns have been a vehicle for satire and for poking fun at powerful people. They provided a safety valve for letting off steam, and they were granted unique freedom of expression, as long as their value as entertainers outweighed the discomfort they caused the higher-ups." Jesters and other persons of ridicule go back at least to ancient Egypt, and the English word clown first appeared sometime in the 1500s, when Shakespeare used the term to describe foolish characters in several of his plays. End quote. And a bit more from a 2013 Smithsonian Magazine piece by Linda Rodriguez McRobbie, quote, Pygmy clowns made Egyptian pharaohs laugh in 2500 BCE. In ancient imperial China, a court clown called Yu Zhu was, according to the lore, the only guy who could poke holes in Emperor Qin Shi Huang's plan to paint the Great Wall of China. 
Hopi Native Americans had a tradition of clown-like characters who interrupted serious dance rituals with ludicrous antics. Ancient Rome's clown was a stock fool called the Stupidus. The court jesters of medieval Europe were a sanctioned way for people under the feudal thumb to laugh at the guys in charge, and well into the 18th and 19th century, the prevailing clown figure of Western Europe and Britain was the pantomime clown, who was a sort of bumbling buffoon." End quote. And it was around that era, the turn of the 19th century in Western Europe, that we got the first uber-popular clown as we might recognize one today, and whom many scholars cite as the originator of the creepy clown. Joseph Grimaldi, a popular comedic actor in London who came from a long line of performers. Due to his lineage, he was well familiar with the Commedia dell'arte version of clowns, country bumpkins, or clever servants. They'd wear the now-familiar checked jester-like outfits or tattered clothing, depending on the archetype. The only makeup that they would wear may be some rouge on their cheeks to suggest that they were a bit inebriated. But Grimaldi, wanting to break out of the mold and turn the archetype on its head, wore, quoting the Smithsonian, "...bizarre, colorful costumes, stark white face paint punctuated by spots of bright red on his cheeks and topped with a blue mohawk." End quote. As Ed Simon explained in JSTOR Daily this week, quote, With this costume, he established the clown as a strange archetypal nightmare. It was unsettling because it superimposed childlike body adornment over a distinctly adult body, writes Sarah M. Gordon in the Journal of American Folklore. This move belied the question of why adults would willingly infantilize themselves and dress in such peculiar clothing, writes Andrew McConnell Stott of the Journal for Early Modern Cultural Studies. From the knickers to the slippers, Grimaldi's outfit evoked the uniforms of schoolboys in the era of King George. His spangled, flamboyant colors competed with the Harlequins for visual pop. End quote. Grimaldi's goal, as Gordon describes it, was anarchy on stage. He was a physical actor, so his performances would include slapstick, stunts, contortions of his face and body, and even, quote, repulsive acts of eating. End quote. It was so unlike anything audiences had seen before, so edgy, that it took off. Not only did Grimaldi become a superstar, but other clowns quickly followed suit. Like so many comedians before and after him, though, Grimaldi struggled behind the scenes. He grew up with an abusive father and was in chronic pain from his physically demanding performances. His struggles were well known. Grimaldi would joke publicly, I am grim all day, but I will make you laugh at night. Grimaldi ended up tragically dying destitute from alcohol poisoning. And the darkness behind his performances is part of what changed clowning, just as much as his costumes and makeup did. Clowns, jesters, and tricksters are archetypes across cultures, and have always been mirrors to our society, you know, able to say what everyone was thinking but dared not express, or using cunning ways to make you see something that you hadn't realized before, or they simply played on the indulgent, vice-filled, sexual sides of humanity. The darkness was in the performance, but with Grimaldi, the darkness was hidden, yet all too real. Stott, the English professor and vice provost of the University of Southern California, told Smithsonian back in 2013, what changed about clowns is how that darkness is manifest, end quote. But it's not just Grimaldi on his own who changed the path of clowns in our public consciousness. Sott puts that blame on Charles Dickens. 
Dickens edited, and most likely substantially, ghost-wrote Grimaldi's memoirs for a posthumous publication. Quoting JSTOR Daily, Dickens's Grimaldi, and perhaps the real one too, was a man who transformed himself into a clown because of his psychological constipation. He was a bifurcated personality apt to chalking over the seams which mental agony had worn in his face. The Memoirs of Joseph Grimaldi is a trauma narrative. It offers a horrifying portrait of the abuse Grimaldi endured at the hands of his father. And a haunted man, Grimaldi would sob and cry aloud and suffer so much violent and agonizing spasms, his fellow actors feared he'd be unable to return for the second act. Yet return he did, always ready to rally at the necessary time. End quote. Dickens's depiction of Grimaldi in his memoirs built on a previous clown character that he had written in his serialized Pickwick Papers, a character described in completely repulsive and pitiful conditions on the verge of death. Quoting again, What Dickens did was to make it difficult to look at a clown without wondering what was going on underneath the makeup. That Dickens's version of Grimaldi's memoirs was massively popular meant that this perception of something dark and troubled masked by humor would stick. End quote. Of course, like with most innovations, Grimaldi was not the only one to be doing what he was doing. He nor Dickens are alone responsible for the long-standing, ever-growing association between clowns and creepiness. One other example from just shortly after Grimaldi's time was a clown by the name of Jean-Gaspard de Barreau a.k.a. Piro, when he was clowning, although he became so popular in Paris that he was often recognized even without his signature white-painted face and red lips. And Deborah didn't just make people wonder about the tragedy that could lie beneath that face paint, he created tragedy in the public eye. In 1836, he beat a boy to death with his cane in the street after the boy insulted him. The first clown killing? Probably not, but at least the first one from a clown we would visually and culturally recognize as one today. And of course, in fiction, at the end of the 19th century, we also got the Italian opera Pagliacci, in which a very Grimaldian-looking clown murders his cheating wife. Post-Grimaldi and Devereaux, clowns migrated to the growing circus movement and were less involved in the theater. In the circus, with its huge audiences, Smithsonian notes, their movements and humor became bigger, more obvious, less of the sort of sarcastic, subtle comedy. And this version of the clown then made the jump to TV in the 1950s and 60s with, I think, genuinely popular children's hits like Clarabelle from Howdy Doody and Bozo, whose show was internationally syndicated and whose live shows once had 10-year wait times for tickets. And then, of course, came Ronald McDonald in 1963. But it was this period that actually brought a darker side to clowns again. See, before the jump to commodified TV clowns, clowns were still broadly all-ages entertainment, maybe even more for adults with some of the more sexual humor that some of them deployed. But the TV clowns of the 50s and 60s helped transform the art form into one aimed solidly at children. As Smithsonian puts it, quote, once their made-up persona became more associated with children, and therefore an expectation of innocence, it made whatever the makeup might conceal all the more frightening, creating a tremendous mine for artists, filmmakers, writers, and creators of popular culture to gleefully exploit to terrifying effect." End quote. 
And of course, just like in the 19th century, there was a bit of precedent and real-world inspiration that led to all of the fictional killer clowns. I am talking, of course, primarily about John Wayne Gacy. Gacy was a registered, though not full-time, clown who performed at community events in his downtime. He also sexually assaulted and murdered over 35 young men. And though there's no evidence that he dressed as a clown to lure them in, or while he tortured and killed them, his hobby was enough to earn him the nickname Killer Clown, an identity that he leaned into in prison. I think Gacy and the string of horror books and films that came before and after him have been maybe the biggest factors in generations of kids learning via cultural osmosis to be creeped out by clowns even before encountering any explicitly creepy clown media themselves. You know, kids are pretty perceptive, and if they can tell that their parents or other adults in the room are a little skeeved out by a clown's presence, and really, who since the late 70s hasn't been at least a little then the kids probably will be scared too. There's also less good, positive clown media to overpower the bad, creepy clown media these days, so kids have less chances to make positive associations with them. And there are less professional clowns going into the biz at all. It's been on the decline since the mid-2000s. And some circuses actually hold workshops now, taking people behind the scenes as clowns get ready to try to help them get over their phobia. I'll add anecdotally that even that doesn't quite work, I don't think. So my mom was PTA president when I was in elementary school, and she regularly booked this one clown who, ironically, mostly taught us kids about stranger danger. Now, because my mom was responsible for booking him, I was often around when we picked him up from the airport and showed him around, things like that. I'd see him both in and out of his costume. I even knew his son, who was around my age, and his wife, who was also a clown. And I was never too freaked out by him in or out of clown character. But then again, he didn't wear that eerie white face makeup. His wife did, and I could never stomach being around her in costume. It's a weird thing. Although according to Dr. Brenda Wiederhold, a psychologist focusing on anxiety and phobias, quoting Smithsonian, most people, she says, grow out of the fear. But not everyone. Perhaps as much as 2% of the adult population will have a fear of clowns. And adult clown phobics are unsettled by the clown's face paint and the inability to read genuine emotion on a clown's face, as well as the perception that clowns are able to engage in manic behavior, often without consequences. But really, what a clown fear comes down to, what it's always come down to, is the person under the makeup. End quote. That white face paint, which was pioneered by Grimaldi, who would lather it all over, covering, quoting JSTOR Daily, every bit of visible flesh, including ears, lips, and nostrils, end quote. You know, I think I probably would have liked Grimaldi, both as a man and as a performer, had I met him back in the day, but I really don't like the version of the clown's costume that he originated that has unfortunately stuck for so long. But as for the future of clowns, clowning and circus professionals hold out hope that kids and adults alike will continue to love clowns. There are more therapeutic versions of clowning being used, apparently to great effect, in children's hospitals, and the idea of the creepy clown is already becoming a bit of an overdone trope in horror films. So maybe both extremes of clowns as we've known them for the last century, the innocent kid kind and the creepy killer kind, will both fade from popularity in the coming decades, leaving us with the original, 
the cultural commentator, the trickster, the king's confidant, or maybe that's just wishful thinking on my part. So all the way back in December of 2020, I told you about the finder of the Fen treasure, a chest stuffed with gold and jewels and hidden by art dealer Forrest Fen when he thought he was going to die of cancer. The Fen treasure quickly became one of the most popular challenges for treasure hunting hobbyists. The clues for the treasure were hidden in a 24-line poem included in the text of Fenn's book, The Thrill of the Chase. And since the treasure hunt was announced in 2010, thousands of people have searched for it, gathering in online forums, suing each other over various matters, and risking their lives on adventures across the U.S. Five people in total have tragically lost their lives in pursuit of the treasure. And when it was finally located in the summer of 2020, the exact location and the identity of the winner were both kept concealed for the winner's safety, which turned out to be a solid fear, but not a long-standing strategy. Due to several burgeoning court cases that were going to drag it out, the winner came forward with his real name at the end of 2020. Jack Stoif, a former comedy writer for The Onion, who I mostly knew for incorrectly accusing Matthew Inman from The Oatmeal as being a far-right Republican back in the day. He seems like a decent guy who made a, a few mistakes in his brief media career, and since finding the treasure, he's continued to engage with the treasure hunting community and boost various projects from other Fen treasure hunters. But now, thanks to even more ongoing lawsuits between treasure hunters and the Fen estate, Fen himself passed away in September 2020, mere months after the treasure was found, we also now know the location of the treasure, which was previously kept under wraps. The main remaining lawsuit accuses Fenn of having moved the treasure four times whenever the plaintiff, Jamie McCracken, was getting close to it. As part of the court proceedings, we now know that the treasure chest was hidden in Yellowstone National Park. And at least one ranger knew where it was before the rest of the world did. Shortly after Stoy found it, he and Fenn had a Zoom call with the chief ranger, Sarah Davis, to discuss having found the treasure chest. She went on to survey the area and determined that it was in a location that would not be able to handle the added tourist traffic that could result from the exact location being made public, which is part of why we still don't know exactly where in the park it was found to this day. But even knowing that it was in Yellowstone is validating to many who have been following the story or hunting for the treasure for years. It was one of the top guesses for the chest's hiding place. And there are a lot of other interesting details emerging in this case as well, like the kinds of legal consultation that Fenn got before burying the treasure, and some weird stuff about Stoif moving to Puerto Rico, potentially to avoid capital gains tax, nine months before he found the treasure. Like, did he already know where it was and was getting everything in order before he physically went to find it? I don't know. But I will tell you that I have gotten the most detailed information about the Fen Treasure saga from reporting done by Peter Frick Wright at Outside, and he has an Apple original podcast coming out later this year all about the Fen Treasure. So if you are into this story, give him a follow and look out for that when it drops.
Well, alright, I kinda did it again and wrote one super long segment, but I promised you more today, so instead you just got a really long episode. And I've still got a few more things for you before I go. Mostly, a couple of follow-ups to some things that I have mentioned in the past. So, remember that yo-yo expert Kay Strauss, who took over local morning news over a decade ago before he was revealed to be stand-up comedian Mark Proksh, not in any way a yo-yo expert, but nowadays starring as energy vampire Colin Robinson in What We Do in the Shadows. The comedy crew that Proksh was a part of, who helped him pull off that long con stunt, repeated the trick twice more with local news, once with a celebrity chef, and then with a fake strongman duo called Chop and Steel. And between all of those stunts, they were eventually sued in federal court. The whole saga is now recounted in an upcoming documentary called Chop and Steel, directed by Winnebago Man filmmaker Ben Steinbauer and premiering at the Tribeca Film Fest here in New York next month, hopefully with a wider release at least online after that. The comedy group has been operating as this cool organization called the Found Footage Festival for a number of years. They basically collect weird old VHS tapes, make cool art out of them, and host a lot of live comedy shows related to the findings. If you are at all into offbeat comedy or old media, the Found Footage Festival in general and the upcoming documentary are both well worth checking out. And another follow-up, recently I mentioned Dracula Daily, the second annual emailed newsletter version of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Roughly every day, if you sign up, you are emailed the copy-and-pasted text of the 19th century novel based on the actual dates of events in the epistolary story. So, for example, the book begins with the diaries of Jonathan Harker on May 3rd. So that was the first day of the project, and it will keep running until the date that the story ends in November. There have now been three emailed installments so far, and the community of readers is really starting to take off. I went on Tumblr last night, a place I hadn't frequented for several years until recently, and all of these random accounts that I followed ages ago were all posting about Dracula Daily. There is tons of fan art and memes proliferating and people posting their thoughts as they read through the story bit by bit, many of them for the first time. And while Dracula is, of course, an iconic novel that gave us endless permutations of its modern conception of vampires, the text itself is not the most accessible or exciting to contemporary readers. But this wave of enthusiasm around it and comical, modern takes on the reading experience are really breathing all new life into this undead text. So take that either as a further stamp of approval to sign up for Dracula Daily, or a recommendation to go scroll through some of the fan art and discussions percolating around it. And one last recommendation for your media diet this weekend, another thing that I mentioned briefly before, Bell and Sebastian's first full-length album in seven years dropped this morning. It's called A Bit of Previous, and it's perfect. I've listened to it three times already. Feels like everything that people love from Bell and Sebastian, with a little bit more maturity, depth, and clarity that you would expect from this later career album. But anyways, that is all I have got for you this week. Links to all of that in the show notes. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.